Hey, Managerainers. I hope you're doing well today. I know I am. I'm recording this intro from Mexico City, where I'm on vacation. It is beautiful here. The food is amazing. This episode, I am talking to my good friend, Jake Hilty. He goes by Garbage Agro on the Managerain website. Jake, like myself, is a member of the so-called Team Serious. I once described Team Serious as a social dining club whose members share rooms at tournaments and talk about vintage to avoid their day jobs. Jake's a great guy and a great conversationalist, so I had to have him on the podcast. So this episode's getting to you a little bit late. This was actually the first episode I recorded, but I'm still working at the kinks in the production process, so we're releasing it as episode two. At the beginning, me and Jake are talking about the Star City Games Power 9 series. So if you're not familiar with the Power 9 series, it was a whole series of vintage tournaments that SCG ran back in like 2004 to 2008. A lot of players, such as myself, uh, consider the series a major turning point in vintage history, one of the most important things that has happened to vintage. The events at the time were bigger than vintage champs were. Uh, personally, I have the dubious distinction of having played in more SCG Power 9 events than any other player. At that time in my life, I really liked road trips. A lot of my best memories as a vintage player were at or around Power 9 events. Steve Menendian did a whole podcast and wrote a great article about the history of the Power 9 series. You should definitely check that out, so I'm going to leave some links in the show notes. We're talking about the Power 9 series today because right before this podcast was recorded, which was a few weeks ago now, Star City held their SCG Con event. Uh, and at SCG Con, they held a Star City Power 9 revival event. I was super excited about it. I couldn't make it, but I had to talk about it. All right, so SCG Con just happened. Yeah, yeah, the, the first Power 9 tournament in 10 years, is that right? I At least 10 years, for sure. I know I didn't go, I know you didn't go. <laughs> the perfect guest for... The perfect guest. Uh, some people from Team Sirius went. I think we both would have liked to have gone. Yeah, absolutely. Sadly, you're in another country and I have a four-month-old. We'll start with a with a totally totally unprepared question. How young <laughs> do you introduce a child to magic? There's nothing to do with what we just talked about. That's okay. I feel like that's actually like a question that I've asked other Team Serious members who have kids. Um, I know Steve Sasala's uh, sons play, and I think they started when they were like five or six. And and uh, John was saying that like his kids already like fake play the game. Like they maneuver the cards around and they like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. talk through like my knight kills your dragon, even though they don't actually know the rules yet. Uh, I've, I, I've seen kids do that with Pokemon cards and magic cards. It's great. Yeah. So I feel like you like get them around the magic cards, specific, specific magic cards that are not super expensive <laughs> when they're like three or four. And then you can start with the rule stuff at like five or six. I mean, there's that girl um, who's like her she gets all sorts of media coverage and stuff, but she's trying to get be the f youngest player to ever day to a GP. And she said, I think she started when she was six and she's like 11 now. Damn. But she like, so, I mean, that girl's probably going to be like the best player of all time when she's like 16 or something, but. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, magic was around when I was younger, when I was, it wasn't around when I was born, but it was around when I was pretty young. 
but I don't, I don't know that the competitive scene wasn't the same way. You couldn't really grow up in it. Yeah. I actually, I just listened to a different podcast actually, um, where they were talking about like how starting early, all the like really high, like great players that you think about that are like, you know, just the craziest, you know, LSV and Owen and, um, Huey and all these people that are like insane at the game all started like at oldest when they were like 14. Um, and a lot of the like good players, but not great players started a lot later. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, just like imagine if there, if there were more people that could have started when they were six and or eight or whatever. I think that, yeah, I think that'll be a, a thing to see if the game continues. Yeah. I, I, I don't doubt it. <laughs> All right. After, after that aside, so SCG Con, which your child was too too young to attend this time, but may, <laughs> maybe time. next time. Well, they actually already announced the next one. I Did don't they? know if they're doing. I don't know if they're doing vintage. They may not be doing vintage, but they announced the next SCG Con. It's later this year. Oh man! If they did vintage at all of them, it would be pretty amazing. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, the I would. So it was a good turnout, right? It was uh, one hundred and thirty or something. One hundred and thirty, which is which is great for a sanctioned vintage tournament that starts on a Friday. That starts on a Friday. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it was. It's tough to get to to Roanoke too. Oh yeah, for sure. It's expensive, yeah. The prizes were so crazy. I actually, I can't do the math. I'm, I'm not sure, like, if they profited or not um, with that many players. Yeah, I think I've I've heard very positive things about the like the weekend as a whole in terms of you know the Star City folks all being really happy about turnout and money and everything else. I mean, they announced the second one, so I assume they're like pretty happy with it. They're 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 definitely willing to like cut off a thing that's not making money. So I feel like even if maybe vintage itself didn't make money the conglomeration altogether might make it worth it and they want to have the like fanfare but maybe that means vintage also stays on fridays yeah i mean if 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 it did that would be awesome compared to it going away yeah Um, for sure for sure and i wouldn't mind a significant prize reduction i heard a few people say like why is the time twister there at all like if 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 that's what's if that holds them back then you don't need to give away the full set. It's really not that important. Give no, but work. it is cool to just have tournaments for power. I feel like that's so much yeah. rarer than when I started playing vintage and it's like exciting. And I remember following the power nine series partially because of that and like getting excited about vintage because of that. So I think that, I don't know. I mean, how many people do you know on the team who say, Oh, I won four pieces of my power. Or like, Oh yeah, that's Sapphire. I remember when I won that over here. Like it, it's a, it's a thing that's, I think, part of vintage in a way that it's not part of a lot of other formats yeah i guess i, I don't hear too many people saying uh, uh these tarmogoyfs i won them i guess they might even actually they might do that because now that that's like firmly a legacy card uh yeah. but um yeah yeah people don't uh the history isn't there i guess part of it's because if you, if you the the oldest a standard that can be is two years right yeah that's true i guess uh, you can't you can't have a, a five year old story. Although I do, one of my favorite things is when someone like tricks out their vintage deck with the oldest possible version of card. It's one of the reasons I'm sad that like Essence Scatter is a card, because like why can't it be Remove Soul and let me play my one that's like thirty or twenty years old? I feel like that would be <laughs> funny at a at a standard tournament like Bust Out Your <laughs> incredibly old bordered. Remove oh Soul yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what's the best one for like Lightning Bolt is sometimes standard oh, yeah. legal. <laughs> yeah, Lightning Bolt seems pretty good in that context. Just like your beta bolt. Yeah. 
I'm trying to think of other, I don't know, Sarah Angel is legal in, in standard, although I don't think it's, you know, very good, but <laughs> there are some of those cards that are still around. How does that to build a, a Sarah Angel deck in standard just, just so I could play an old one? Alt fourth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nobody would be impressed with a single all fourth Sarah Angel <laughs> in an otherwise regular deck. That doesn't that doesn't get anyone going. That's it's true. Besides me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man. There there's a lot of to talk about the Power Nine series, the whole history of the Power Nine series. It's one thing to have a big vintage tournament. It's great that SCD did that, but just like the Power Nine series is such a huge part of vintage history. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, and and it's funny because it is different. Like, so this Power Nine series event was not exactly in the same mold as the old ones. The prize pool was the same, and I like that tie. But I mean, it, it doesn't allow proxies, which is understandable to me, given the yeah, SCD's in a different position. Yeah, there are rumors about what that, why that happened, or whatever. But I think that like it's totally reasonable to me that SCG would do that. But it is a difference. Like, and that was how, again how a lot of people got in when I started playing vintage, which I think is a lot later than well, I don't know. I think it was later than when you started playing vintage, but I, I'm not totally sure. That was like very in vogue, the like five proxy or 10 proxy or 15 proxy like tournaments. When did you get into vintage? So I was trying to think about that. So I think the first vintage tournament that I played in, um, I played mono blue control and I played against Nam and he was playing control slaver. So control slaver was a deck, but I mean, that doesn't necessarily narrow it down. I know Dragon was a real deck then, because um, that was like the deck that I transitioned to away from Mono Blue Control. I, I must have been in high school, so I'd guess like early two thousands, like two thousand one or two. I think I got in just just before then, but that was yeah. about the same time, yeah. But I I was like way off of being able to play actual vintage decks because there were only five proxies. So I was playing my Mono Blue Control deck with my five proxies, and they were like Ancestral Mox Sapphire. <laughs> Uh, two mana drains and a time walk, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you do it. I kind of miss... <sighs> that constraint? <laughs> yeah, well, there... I had power pretty early on, but I still... I still remember, like, working with people and, like, I, I wrote it in, like, an SCG articles and other people specifically, this is a budget deck, this is a five-proxy budget deck, this is a ten-proxy budget deck, and this is a non-budget deck. And it's entirely different categories of things you could play. There definitely are like 10 proxy tournaments still exist, but I, it seems like there's more tournaments where it's either no proxies or all proxies, or there's a pretty significant number. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually, I was a little surprised when I looked at, I don't know if it was, I think it's like NYSE didn't have infinite proxies. And I was like sort of surprised given that it wasn't like it had proxies, but not like that felt atypical to me, but maybe a little bit of that is probably that in Ohio, like all of our tournaments are, are infinite proxy. So, or excuse me, play test cards. Sure. Whatever. I'm not not selling cards. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So it's, it's also different now. This is still crazy to me. There was a time, like when we started playing the idea of, playing a deck you would never play less than five moxes in anything unless it was a budget consideration every deck ran all five and now you have a bunch of decks i mean you have dredge which very obviously wants zero like Mm -hmm. you would not play them you wouldn't pay them if someone paid you well (laughs) how how much are you getting paid i don't know 
And then you have all the mentor decks and the and the children of the gush decks that have some run all the moxes and some just run the on-color ones. And Delver will just run a, a ruby and a, a sapphire. And, and they're not, those aren't budget considerations. That's just what's good now. And w- was that a thing when... Because again, I like faded in and out with college and, you know, going away, there weren't a lot of people that played vintage when I was there. Um, so I was like just playing on breaks. But in the times of like GAT, were people playing five Moxin in those gush decks? I'm pretty sure because they're also, there's like Yawgul decks, right? Those decks were, um, you have four, you have Demonic Tutor and four Merchant Scrolls and you're trying to get a colorless source for that. You're, you're probably a four color deck to begin with. Yeah. And I guess you're trying to resolve like a threat pretty early so that you can build it up with all yeah. of your counters and everything, all your free stuff. The turn one dryad. I, there were yeah. probably some people who cut like the Mox Pearl for an extra island of some sort to power gushes, but but it was not not as dramatic as it is now. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that has to do with the fact that your threats are very cheap. Like, I think that it makes more sense to me in this era of restricted monastery manner when. Monastery Manor was played as a three or four of in those decks. It made so much less sense to me to not run Moxin just because they're so good with Mentor and getting Mentor out early is so good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I don't know. I think now with like, I don't know, you, you play one Mentor and that's like your, <laughs> your only threat in some of those decks or you play um, Young Pyromancer and you're not as concerned about getting it down like immediately because you're just playing a more controlling game. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, a lot of people do still run all the all the Moxes. I... I have tended not to, but I think it's just there's different builds. It's just interesting yeah, yeah. that there's a valid strategy. There's also things like No Rod is a valid strategy in a top tier deck. I mean, it's always there's been No Rod decks that have been fine, but they've never really been. No one was ever talking about restricting cards out of a No Rod deck. Yeah, that's true. You have like Stony Silence in Mentor decks, and um, the Bloodfish decks are pretty good right now. Yeah, I mean, well, and that that's probably a conversation for, like, uh, a different podcast at some point. But, like, man, Stony Silence was such a game changer, for me at least. Because, you know, that was my, that's how I got in, right? I was playing all these hate bear decks and, and stuff, and I just couldn't believe how much better it was than Null Rod since I was already playing white. It was so much harder to remove. That's less true now, but it also sees mm-hmm. more play. And I think you're right. I think, like, outside of maybe some some specific builds of, like, stacks or something you didn't see null rod in any kind of top tier decks and i you know maybe stacks wasn't top tier if it was playing that at the time yeah i don't know i think it's definitely a different format the thing that always like strikes me about it too when you talk about like people playing full moxin or not and what things are main deckable there a lot of guys on our team play decks that are old because they have nostalgia for them or because they're like ah, i can make this work in this matter that you know that's a challenge but they build them according to those new paradigms so, like Dragon 10 years ago, 15 years ago, ran full Moxin. None of those guys run full Moxin now. And like even the the combo decks all ran full Moxin. And a lot of the combo decks don't run full. Well, I mean, not not outcome, but I mean, I guess tendrils, which is not that common of a deck. But like, it's just interesting. There has been, despite the fact that people, I I think a lot of people feel like it doesn't change as a format. There's been a big shift and there are strategic whether they're right or wrong, there's strategic shifts in how people are building decks. So, that being said, some of the same people from the old Power Nine series are still top eighting uh, these Power Nine series. Brian DeMars. <laughs> <laughs> that was true. That was really it was really fun to see him uh, to see his name on there. Um, I was kind of I was kind of rooting for Steve Menandian. I was kind of rooting for him because he has the uh, 
he has the distinction the record, of, right? Yeah, the, depending on how you measure it, um, he he's the one who did the math. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I, I think most top eights, at least in in the Power Nine series. Um, I'm sure he could argue to you that that's the most the most important and correct way to to do it. So he could. It'd be good. I mean, it's it, it is certainly one of the better ways. I wouldn't I wouldn't argue yeah. there. And and I believe he was a couple a couple top eights ahead of other people. Yeah. No. I mean, he definitely he definitely had a like really good result. I was impressed by how many of the guys I knew though. Like, you know, Jerry's on there. You're on there. Oh, the the history of the Power Nine, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was I was happy that I was like connected. I guess it's a small community, but like it's still neat to know that like a lot of those guys are still at least pretending to play. That wasn't meant to be a slight at you. I was talking crap about Jerry. Jerry doesn't even pretend to play. We'll have him on and force him to say something. Yeah, he'll just say I don't know anything about those cards. <laughs> but yeah, the rest of this top eight. I mean, other than one pretty obvious one, I wasn't as familiar with a lot of the guys in this top eight. Um, and I knew uh, I was happy and sad, I guess, uh, for Sally that, as he put it, he was uh, he was the second loser. He was in 10th. Second, second <laughs> last or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's been getting 10th. Did he get 10th at Champs this year? He did. So he that, did. Yeah, that's unfortunate <laughs> to get exactly 10th twice in a row. Or not twice in a row, but two very large events. Yeah, if you go further down the list, like the top 16, so so Stephen Nedian did make um, 15th place. Uh, Will McGran, I think. Oh, God, I'm, I'm going to say he's from New York. I don't know. He's he's not from Boston, uh, but he plays in tournaments in that area. Uh, it's pretty good, and he's at 14th. The name that we've avoided saying so far is the winner of the event. <laughs> yeah, a- Andy Marketin. Andrew Marketin can't lose. <laughs> that guy might be pretty good at magic. Yeah, he's, I, I don't uh, know. He's our current our current vintage uh, North American champion until like a few months from now. Well, maybe we'll see. <laughs> yeah, he'll probably just win again. Yeah, he he won that with shops. He won this with shops. He is very good. I think people underestimate how much he's um, contributed to the archetype too. He's the first person I ever saw run Foundry Inspector, and like I copied him. Before other people were running County Inspector, it's like, this card looks bad, but it's actually amazing. Well, and also, I feel like when you talk about, you know, we were talking about Steve's sustained success. If you look at MTGO results, like, it's unbelievable. It's 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 fallen off a little bit since it's his utter dominance for a while there. But, like, he's still, I don't think you can probably find a page in these top mud decks that doesn't have his name at least once or twice, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is pretty impressive <laughs> across all these tournaments. He's just he's just super consistent, and he just plays perfectly. And he's also, to top it off, a pretty nice guy. Yeah, he's super easy to root for if you haven't met him. I think I've described him before as, like, he's a grumpy Canadian, which makes him, like, the nicest vintage player in the world. <laughs> yeah, I think, that's, I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah, he's so friendly, he's so nice. Uh, incredibly humble. If you if you talk to him like while an event's going on, while he's like seven zero, he'll just be like, "Well, you know, I uh, I don't know if I'm gonna win. I don't want to get too excited yet." <laughs> but yeah, it seems like uh, um, shops and the MTGO contingent have been have been doing well based on preparation and skill. I think a lot um, over the past year or two years, but. Man, uh, the the craziest thing for me about about Andy too is that he, as far as I know, didn't own power like two years ago. Oh yeah, 
he was like all online and then he's like i'm gonna try out this paper magic like vintage and then just like has dominated mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i remember talking to him at god i don't remember if it was waterbury or champs something some large paper tournament one of the first ones he went to and uh him just being absolutely terrified and i totally understand why of ids Intentional draws, they don't exist on Magic Online. Oh, yeah. In Magic Online, you just play out the whole Swiss, and when you're done, the best eight records are in, and you do it. So you don't, like me and you, having played in a million paper tournaments in our lives, like growing up on this, are like familiar with the math. Now, sometimes sometimes we get it wrong. Hump. Because it's com- <laughs> it's got, it can be complicated stuff, but like we have like a general instinct of like when it's okay to draw or not. Because it's usually pretty simple when it's okay to draw or not. Yeah. But as if you've never played the paper, and I've, I've met other Magic Online players who've, who've, who've gone through the same thing, it, you, it's terrifying. Your opponent asks you to draw, and you're like, what's happening? Even if you know it's a thing, you're like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm like undefeated. I don't want to knock myself out of the tournament. Just the whole concept of like tiebreaker match kind of just, just like doesn't exist. Yeah, and I, I think there's probably a lot of people in the Magic community that would be like, that's how it should be. We should be, we should do it like MTGO and there shouldn't be IDs, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm wary of them because as you were alluding to, I drew myself into top, into ninth at champs three years ago, whatever, however many years ago that was, but I, I can understand that being an intimidating thing. Cause I, and for me, it wasn't even that I had done the math wrong. I don't think it's that I misunderstood that two people who were playing had already drawn who were ahead of us because I thought they were playing it out. And I was like, oh, they're playing to see for positioning. And like, it was a whole thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I can understand being intimidated by that. Although at this point, why would he ever draw with anyone? He can just crush everybody. <laughs> yeah, who cares? He just can't lose. It's fine. Yeah, just, you know, just roll into the top eight and crush everybody. <laughs> yeah, man. But no, I, I think overall that, that seemed like a really positive event. There was a lot of cool um, tournaments going on. They had the duel for duels. They had the... No bandless modern. It seemed like just a really neat event. And I'm glad that they're still tinkering, you know. I feel like SCG was sort of a small company when they started the Power Nine series. And then like with the open series, they got so big and then they restructured the open series. And now, like, I don't know. I can't imagine a, another company sort of challenging them other than maybe Channel Fireball with the the Grand Prix. But like so I'm, I'm glad to see that they're still tinkering with their model and still finding new fun tournaments. And I hope that there continue to be a lot more of the um, the Power 9 ones. There, I, I just noticed actually on a tweet here that Sally was saying that he had a conversation with uh, Pete, the owner of Star City, and it sounded like they might they, they are interested in potentially doing it more moving forward. So maybe if it's yearly or whatever, but any amount of more big, exciting vintage tournaments I'm in favor of. Yeah. Yeah, that's really. I, I would have really liked to have gone to this one. The, the timing wasn't great. Yeah. Um, so, a quick note on the, uh, I guess, on the metagame. So, we, we do have four shop stacks in the top eight. Shops has definitely been the, I don't know, the boogeyman of the format, I guess is the way to say it. I've heard people call lots of decks the boogeyman of the format. But I think that actually represents like a metagame in flux because the last few large events had almost no shops like one shops and it didn't win right the waterbury was an outcome deck and uh, european champ was a uh, mentor deck i think kind of a mix so I, I don't know whether shops on top is uh 
regression to the mean or whether it's uh, things are just in flux and they keep shipping around or people are metagaming, counter metagaming, or maybe just AD is great. <laughs> That's an option too. Yeah, well, I think definitely part of it is that just Andy's just better than a lot of us. But I think the other thing I would point out is that there were some different shop stacks. There were reports of, you know, stacks and there was report, you know, there's people that were playing, trying out um, Traxos along with Voltaic Construct and people that were trying it with, you know, there's, there's, there's variation in there. It's not as, for a while, it seemed like there was one shop stack that everyone was playing within, you know, three cards or four cards basically whatever Andy was playing. But I think that's, I think that's honestly gotten a little bit broader, which is awesome. (laughs) And I think that that probably helps to, to a certain extent too, to feel like it's not just like shops being oppressive. There's different versions. That being said, the ones in the, in the top eight were a little bit more similar, but even then there's some innovation there. I mean, I feel like we've been talking about some of these newer cards and some of the different cards people have been playing for a while, but I was excited to see Traxos on camera. I was excited that it wasn't just our insular stuff that was saying this card <laughs> might be might be something real. And the second place deck had two copies of it. So that's exciting to me. Also had a copy of Sky Sovereign in the sideboard, which is has seen some play, but is a little bit surprising, I guess. I I totally agree. I think people are mixing it up now. Traxos is a little exciting, but if you want true innovation, I think we're going to have to take a look at our deck of the week. Oh, man. The deck of the week. Well, here, before we jump all the way into the deck of the week, I just wanted to say this about the metagame. Um, I was saying this to you kind of right before we started recording, but I looked because I'm a little bit removed from the MTGO, again, form with old, um, meta, and just seeing kind of where people are playing. And I was a little bit surprised to see Mud on MTG Top 8 over the last two months under 20% of the meta. And to see Dredge at 16% of the meta, that feels like a huge share for Dredge. Yeah, it's it's scary. Um, <laughs> I think I think there's a pretty good split because um, I think you have Mentor and Shops and Oath and Dredge and Outcome. Paradoxical Storm yeah. is, yeah. They're all, they're all contenders. And that the field is split sort of evenly between them. I played in a Magic Online League the other day. I played five different matchups, uh, but none of them were shops. Yeah, I mean, that by itself says, I think, a, a huge amount about Because <laughs> for a while online, it was like shops or outcome or mm-hmm. shops or oath. After, you know, there there yeah. were only two or three decks, and I feel like there has been a little bit of a shift. So maybe, yeah, maybe the people that have continued their shouts of restrict a card from shops will <laughs> get a little quieter. <laughs> Um, overall, it seems to me that it's a pretty fun meta. I'm, I'm excited to try out new things like that. <laughs> I think we've teased it enough now, like the deck of the week. Like here. the deck of the week. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to, we're going to put this deck list in our show notes. If I can figure out what that means. We're looking at uh, a 5-0 deck from a vintage league by Kaluma. I don't know Kaluma's real name. And on Magic Online, we don't have... Kaluma's name for the deck, but this is a five-color survival of the fittest deck. Yeah, let me let me say a couple of cards that are in this deck. Two Bayou, two Kambal, one Tassiger, <laughs> two Squee, one Gaia's Cradle, <laughs> two 
two Thalia, one Thorn of Amethyst. There, there, there's a core here. There's a core of fundamental cards that I think are part of this like overarching strategy, which is like four survival, four bizarre, two squee, four vengevine, four hollow one, four basking root wall up. Like that set of cards, I, I'm like, I'm on. I figured it out. I, I get what we're doing. We're doing the old madness thing. We're bringing in some of the new, the new hollow one thing. That's been good in basically every other format. Let's try it in vintage. Awesome. But man, this guy saw survival or girl and said, I'm going to throw some sweet ones in here, <laughs> which <laughs> by the way, um, not running all the mocks in, just running four, but running two other spirit guide for their, uh, for their acceleration alongside their black Lotus. Yeah. So, so I did say it was a five color deck, technically the two, the only red card of two squeeze. So it's not really a five color deck. Primarily green. I feel like the mana doesn't look awful. Well, they have a bunch of, well, five, I guess, um, one mana mana guys. They have two birds, two Deathrite Shaman, and a Noble Hierarch, which, like, again, that's such a specific mix. I feel like whoever this is has spent so much time, like, crafting this deck exactly the way they wanted it. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think there's also the reverse possibility, which is if I wasn't sure whether I wanted Death Rider Birds of Paradise, I would probably just run two and two and see what happened. And then just run the one noble hierarch, cause uh maybe. Are there <laughs> any other are there any other exalted? No. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, right? Maybe that maybe that's being tested too. Or maybe it has been tested and this is the right number. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know, but I'm excited about that mix. I, I feel like I haven't seen Noble Hierarch in a lot of a lot of vintage decks in a long time. There was a, a little while where the Noble Fish was a thing, and you know people have played this as an accelerant, but or birds for that matter. I feel like Deathrite Shaman has sort of been in charge of that space for a while. So what do you what do you like about this deck? Well, so I, I think that core is interesting. I think there's definitely something to Bizarre and Survival and Hollow One. And Vengevine, I guess, and Basking Root. Well, like I think that set of synergies can be powerful. Um, I know you've you've played it a little bit online, maybe pre-Hollow One, but I think there is something there. Survival's a really powerful card, you know, it's it's banned in legacy, and I think there's something there. But honestly, the things that get me most excited about this list are all the the hate cards. I love two Kambal. I love two Thalia, I love a Manglehorn. Manglehorn's such a cool card that like nobody has played because it's weird. <laughs> But that card seems great. <laughs> when you're running the four survival, that's when you want to run like the one of Manglehorn. That's you want yeah. it, right? Now I don't know that I get the one of Tarmogoyth. We'll we'll get into that in a second. Uh, <laughs> I think my favorite thing is I just think, and I think you will 100 percent agree with me. This Thalia is an incredibly good card. I I like that this is a deck that works with Thalia in the same way that White Eldrazi is definitely a deck that that works with Thalia, but most decks don't work with Thalia. You can't just throw it in anything. Yeah, th- there was a little while where we tried to get big Thalia when it first came out to work with some other stuff, along with little Thalia here to work with some other stuff. And we were having a hard time because it is it is a big constraint, but this deck deals with that constraint well. It's interesting because they obviously thought that effect was good enough to run a thorn, but they're running that one thorn over the third Thalia, I guess. I like that. So you can, first of all, you can have both out. Right, you can't. That's, that's true. No way to tutor for the thorn, though. No, but it's just it's redundant, and you have all the off color moxes, right? Like Thalia is more specific. It's it's not a base white deck. It's a base green deck. Oh yeah, that's actually a good point. There's only there's only two white sources plus four fetches, and then and the I guess the five and the mana guys. Yeah. 
five mana guys in Pearl. Yeah. So there's a there's a, a fair amount of white, but still, I I, I think that's probably less white yeah. sources. That is probably why it's only two, right? Um, the, what jumped out to me was like, oh, I, I would want more, but maybe two's the right number. If it were me, I would want to try and squeeze one big dolly in there. That that maybe even in that Manglehorn spot, although maybe Manglehorn is doing that against all the decks you care about, but man. Big Thalia has an effect on games, and I'm sad that White Eldrazi has fallen so far because that was my favorite printing for a long time just because it was it just changed all of your metrics for figuring out where you were in the game. So White Eldrazi did top 16, the Power Nine. Oh, I didn't even see that. 13th place. Oh, man. I'm going to have to look at that after our, after our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> With 3 Glow Rider, I did look at this list. All right, I, I talked to somebody about 3 Glow Rider instead of... We've had this conversation before. I think so. Uh, but yeah, no, I honestly, I think this deck is really cool. The things that I am questioning the most are... Yeah, if, if you were going to play this or something similar, what what would you what would you change? Or what would you what do you not like about it? I, I, I'm with you that the one Tarmogoy feels a little funny. I think I would rather have... There's one Tasker. I think I'd rather have another one of the big Delve guys, whether it's Tasker or the Zombie Fish that I can't remember the name of. But... Yeah, it does feel a little bit weird to me that it's Tarmogoyf, and it's only a one of. I guess the other thing, too, is I, I, it it feels weird to me that there's the one Noble Hierarch rather than... Yeah, you, you're, you're assuming that it's that the correct configuration is probably four and one, but you don't know, you don't know which ones, but it's four and one yeah. as opposed to two, two, one. But other than that, I don't know. There's There's a lot of things to like about this list. We didn't talk at all about this yet, but man, the sideboard had some, has a couple heaters in it too. So I, I haven't seen Gilded Drake in a long time. Gilded Drake, Chain of Mephistopheles, uh, the third Thalia, Energy Flux, Stony Silence, Ma- uh, another copy of Maglehorn. <laughs> this per- abrupt decay, anti nature's claim. This person does not want to lose to shops. Uh, I mean, everybody, everybody says that, right? Who knows? Who knows? I don't know. I feel like if I were trying to not lose to shops, a thing that you that I would consider is running five mana dudes, two other spirit guides, and some energy fluxes along with spot removal. I, I don't know, if, but like two Nature's Claim, two energy flux is actually kind of light in my opinion, right? Like if, if the game plan was four Nature's Claim and three energy flux, but... Well, but you're but you're missing the fact that there's also this other Manglehorn, the Manglehorn main. ESG to me is a card that is like four, like is better acceleration yeah. against shops. Yeah. I guess that's less true now, but... Um, and I mean, a breath decay comes in in that case too, but yeah, you're right. I guess, I don't know. I, I, I'm not totally sure that I understand this sideboard. I might not be smart enough to play this sideboard. There's definitely a plan, but I don't think it's like super aggressive anti-shops. I wonder based on this sideboard, if they just crush mentor, like because they're not sideboarding any cards for it, really. I imagine chains. Yeah. is, is for mentor and combo. It's tough. I've seen the deck in action. Like survival and bizarre can be very powerful. Well, I haven't seen this list in action, but I've seen similar decks. It can get very broken starts. If you can get turn one survival into play, a lot like turn one oath, it's pretty hard for your opponent to like deal with that resolved threat. Yeah, and it can just like beat somebody because you don't have to resolve spells anymore. Yeah, you just run out a bunch of. Um... Yeah, so so real quick, we've been talking about the deck for a while, and this is probably pretty obvious to most people looking at it, but survival is survival can do a lot in this deck that might not be necessarily apparent right away. Like you can get a lot of power in the board with a little bit of green mana just by kind of looking for Venge Vines in a row 
and then finding you find one basking rootwalla and then you find a hollow one you play that and then all your revenge vines come back and it doesn't take a lot of mana to get 20 power on the board yeah it has to be all green which is a real problem and and i feel like we get almost branched into like a mini because we're already just on the edge of this like a mini single card discussion because i feel like we both have strong opinions about elvish spirit guide it's not a card to see very often. It isn't. You could do a lot of stuff with it in a survival deck specifically. You could survival for it at the end of somebody's turn if you have multiple creatures. You can um, you can like survival for it to like store up the mana for later, basically. You get it now and then do one burst turn later. You were talking about against workshops? Well, yeah, it's just it's one of the accelerants that like when you draw it and they have spheres out or they have any of those lock pieces out, it still generates mana for you, which is like different than a mox, right? Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. at least on the turn that you draw it. Yeah. And that can be relevant. In the old days, the old, old days when shops had, you know, access to all the spheres, um, occasionally storm decks would run some of the spirit guides as a way to like get past spheres to get up to their hate cards because it was easier to resolve those to get into your Hercules or whatever, mm -hmm. um, since you didn't have to pay the tax on both. So that's that's just a thing that I like. I Honestly, I... I, I probably between the two of us and between maybe, I don't know, a good 80 or 90% of the vintage community, I've probably attacked with more Elder Spirit guys <laughs> than anybody else too. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a card that like makes me happy because I think it, it does have a really interesting effect. I still am waiting for Soldier or Spirit, Spirit Guide, the White Spirit Guide. I think it would be a fair card to print. I think it would make me very happy. The other thing I wanted to just talk about in this list that I think is interesting is the use of Gaius Cradle. For two reasons. One, because it's a one of and it doesn't have to be. Maybe that's right, maybe it isn't. But like Gaius Cradle is a card that I think might be underplayed in Vintage. Okay. I'm not sure. It's a very powerful card, obviously. There were times when, you know, before Walking Ballista was printed, when Elves was a deck that could do some things in Vintage. It wasn't, you know, tier one by any means. But I think there I think it's a little bit unexplored. And I mean we we all know how kind of powerful Tolarian is. Gaius Cradle can do similar work. There are Comboy versions of shops. There are weird, I don't know, people played those old Cobalt decks back in the day, but you can do a really similar thing with some powerful traditional vintage cards. And I just think it's an underexplored card because Tolarian was there and then went away and green is seen as like not as good a color. But I think it's a powerful card. And especially to make up for the fact that you want a ton of green mana, but you also are running for Bazaar. I think it's an interesting yeah. play. And that's yeah. another reason, just to point this out, to run Elvish Spirit Guide because it means you can turn one your mana dude and still play bizarre and potentially you know throw out two hollow ones on turn one or something like that's a pretty that's a pretty busted turn one if you can get that to work yeah i i think that i i don't know how many of our listeners are actually looking to build this revival deck but if you are elvish spirit guide i think is the card in the deck that is the least obvious like the ratio of how good it is to how obvious it is is the furthest apart <laughs> like it's not a card you think about a lot but it hits every note in this deck, right? Like even just swapping out a land for a creature in a deck that needs to just draw creatures for survival. That's really good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, yeah, this is just a cool, <laughs> this is just a cool deck overall. I just keep seeing different cards like Cabal pops back out to me and I'm like, oh man, Cabal has been really good in Vintage lately. Yeah. Really good. I was going to say, and, and this doesn't, this doesn't strike me as good or bad, but just to call out, there's two Cabals in the main deck. It's the only black card. The sideboard is oh, one Chains of Mephistopheles, which could easily be a um, Spirit Labyrinth, which is oh, a yeah. white creature, right? Which is in many ways 
better. I mean, Series of Life Sloppies, maybe you want to discard cards too. That's a thing. Um, and one Abrupt Decay, which is a solid card, but it's not like you can't get a lot of that value with something else. Basically, I'm saying that I I believe by looking at this deck, the deck builder has very strong opinions about Cabal, right? Like if you're willing to splash a fourth color in a deck that's running Bizarre, you're doing it for a card you think is very good. So there's, there's going to be specific reason, right? Like it's, it's great. Yeah. It's great against outcome. I think it's pretty solid against mentor. It's just an irritating card too. It's just one of those cards that like, especially in a deck like this, that's like poking you with a bunch of different kinds of damage where you just have to deal with it. And it's annoying to have to deal with this, like, you know, hill giant or two, three, you know, three mana, two, three, like seems like oh, I can just ignore that, but you can't because you're, it's dealing you damage in all these other incremental ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I like it in this list a lot. I think, um, yeah, I don't know if it's worth the whole splash, but I do, I do like it. Yeah, there, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm intrigued. Like I said, there's a, there's a lot to see here. I mean, it's funny to see a vintage deck where there's so many one and two ofs, which is pretty common, but like only, you know, maybe a third of them are commonly played. I don't know. I like it. It's interesting too, I guess. I mean, this makes a little bit more sense probably to, to the vintage listeners out there, but the only blue cards in the main deck are Wonder, Recall, and Time Walk. And obviously, Time Walk is insane in any deck that is going to run creatures and is winning by attacking. But like, when you talk about the splashes, like at its core, this deck is is pretty green white. Not even that much white. There's only four white cards. Yeah. I guess Stony Silence, but there are replacements for them. That's interesting. I wonder. Yeah, I really do. I wonder if you could build this deck nearly mono green and maybe splash one of these four colors or three yeah four colors and then like just gain a bunch of value against things that are running wasteland well they they still hit bizarres right they're still hurting you well yeah but i mean it depends on what your draw is like yeah bizarre is obviously good in the deck and it's like that's like the reason that this kind of archetype can exist but like there's definitely going to be draws where your bizarre is not as critical to your game plan right this deck doesn't run other than two squee and the Venge Vines, which are, you know, part of that plan. It doesn't run any recursion at all. So like, and you know, this might be because of the speed of vintage and because of the kinds of things you can get away with. But like traditionally in, in legacy and in all these other places, there were, there was some form of recursion, whether it was or a stronghold or Genesis or even for the lands that you're discarding. Cause like you're discarding a lot of cards to your, if you're, if you're using bizarre here, and this doesn't have as many ways to capitalize on that. I mean, obviously, Bizarre into multiple Hollow Ones, insane. Mm-hmm. No one is going to argue that that's not good, but or that that's not like a powerful thing that this deck can do. But I think it's interesting to me that they're not running any of those sort of recursive uh, abilities that like capitalize a little bit more on the Bizarre. They're more, it's to me, this feels like more like a survival deck that's added this Bizarre package because it had it wanted to have the Hollow Ones anyway. I mean, I feel like we actually we actually have full time, but if you want to do some lightning round questions because they're kind of fun, we can do that too. I'm so I'm so concerned. I, like I, I'm, I, there's so many things these questions could be. All right, so Jake, are you ready? <laughs> I don't I, I don't know if I can I can't answer that until I know what the questions the, are. So the lightning bolt round. <laughs> <laughs> the lightning bolt round. Let's do it. Lightning bolt round. All right. What are your favorite magic card sleeves? Oh man, I love the Ultra Pro Pro Matte sleeves. I was using those for a long time. 
just because I like the texture of them and I like that they're not super shiny. But I recently had a huge switch and I'm now using the mint green matte dragon shields just because they hold up better. Mm. I was frustrated that my ultra pros kept splitting and man, I bought a lot of sleeves because of my silly other formats, middle school and stuff. And I, yeah, I'm loving the dragon shield. So right now I'm going to say dragon shields. Okay. And for interior sleeves, because we're vintage players and we all double sleeve our cards, yeah. right? Um, I'm really liking the, the smoke um, perfect fits. The ones that have the dark back. Okay. I don't, I haven't um, I've gotten into those lately. Cool. Oh, they're, they're nice. Cause you can play the double face cards in them and, they don't, even if it's a little bit opaque, or I mean, a little bit see-through on the back of a um, sleeve, which the Dragon Shields aren't, but other ones have been, it it obscures it. So they all look the same, which is a nice feature. All right. You're at a vintage tournament in your hometown. What's the best place to go to get dinner afterwards? Oh, man. There's so many options. I'm going to be honest with you. I've, I've been thinking about this a little bit more recently because we haven't had a TSI in Cleveland in a while. It's always been like sort of near but not here um i think the answer might be happy dog um for a mix of reasons so happy dog is a hot dog restaurant (laughs) um it's a bar um it is a little bit um a little bit you know dirty divey but for the most part not too much of that it's pretty big which is good because we're loud and rowdy and that's a thing that's okay and um, yeah, they let you put, they have like a hundred toppings. You can pick your list of toppings. They have vegan hot dogs. They're actually pretty good. Um, and they have t- uh, tots, tater tots that you can do with like a bunch of different dips. But yeah, just a really fun, like kind of laid back place. A lot of good beer. Mm-hmm, I think that's mm-hmm. that's like an ideal thing for a lot of vintage players. Because um, a lot of the other places that I like, I don't know, either are hard to get a bunch of people in or are more expensive than people want to spend it on. But man, yeah, Happy Dog is great. Plus, there's a chance that, although he just retired, they have a guy who comes on um, some Saturdays, DJ Kishka, who is uh, a representative of the large Polish community in Cleveland, and he spins Polish records as a DJ, and it's awesome. That, that sounds awesome. So that place, well, nice, <laughs> nice. I feel like I feel like I need to need to check this out next time I'm over there. <laughs> You should, man. You should come. You Honestly, I, I get there. Um, I mean, not that I don't even know if you're still observing vegetarian, but um, there I, I get those rather than the regular hot dogs a lot because I just like them. They're those like field roast ones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those are pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. What was the first deck that you ever played in a vintage tournament? Oh, man, I I actually answered this one already, but it's it was mono blue control. Okay, okay. Um, I didn't realize that was the very first. I, yeah, that was that was the first one that I, I I was scheming with my two high school friends, and we built between the three of us, we built um, mono red burn with like Sirocco's main, <laughs> um, which look up that card if you don't know what it does. It will seem as terrible as it was then. Um, and then my mono blue deck, and then our third friend played something ridiculous, <laughs> as though those two weren't. It was like Cadaverous Bloom combo or something. Nice. I don't know. It was pretty bad. People love Cadaverous Bloom. New players, particularly. I mean, I did. It's so cool. Yeah. That that combo like opened up people's eyes mm-hmm. a lot. I think in Magic. Yeah. But yeah, that was the those are the those are the big ones. But yeah, Mono Blue Control that I had been playing since it rotated out of Extended. Like I had the deck together because I bought someone's Force of Wills because they were no longer legal in Extended, mm-hmm. and I I still have those Force of Wills. Like I played them in that deck. I played Mono Blue Control forever. That's kind of like what we opened with, right? Like you you can have 
a real history of the cards you're playing in vintage. You can't really, yeah. even if you wanted to, you can really have it in standard. And it's it's funny because people don't believe me when I say, oh yeah, they rotated at the same time as the dual lands. And they're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. The dual lands and Ice Age shouldn't rotate together. And I'm like, oh no, they had this whole thing in extended where the dual lands. <laughs> yeah. like, like people yeah. are like, what? <laughs> That's how I picked up a bunch of my dual lands too. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Good times. It's a weird, weird history. <laughs> all right i love that <laughs> <laughs> so now you have you have to be honest about this don't give me the answer that you wish was true give me the answer that's true how what is your process for making proxies when you go to a tournament okay so it's it's changed it's changed over time so for a while it was print out the large print ones which I think are the most useful when you are like interacting with another player because it's just very clear what they are. It's big block text, but they look terrible on camera. I'm not sure what the uh, what the large print ones are. Oh, so it's it's basically just like it's a rectangle that's the size of the paper. I don't remember what site makes them anymore because I stopped doing it. Mm-hmm. But and the name of the card is like in size 22 font, mm-hmm. and the and the mana cost is, and then the like full oracle text of the card is there, and there's no art. Okay. So it's just like white on black, like text, but it's roughly arranged like a magic card is and it's like super clear, but it looks bad on camera. Mm-hmm. And I got a bunch of crap at one of the TSIs for them because no one could understand what my cards were. So <laughs> I bought a bunch of those uh, gold bordered ones that are like from the old championship yep, stacks. Yep. And I have two sets of the like a fish or of the like power mm-hmm. that are proxied that way. One that's pen and ink drawings that I did and one that's like, sharpie marker like line drawings but like the colors match the moxin okay <laughs> or have like a funny like pretty close and then now i actually have nice proxies okay so it's i've gone through this whole evolution i got from the proxy guy i got <laughs> japanese foil of the power nine oh, that's pretty um, intense. and some duels with new borders because i i bought them bec- or i ended up getting them because Sally i didn't buy them because he doesn't sell stuff but i Sally had gotten them but didn't want foil but had already got had ordered them and that wasn't communicated properly so it's like i'm ordering them again if anybody wants these i'll trade for them because i'm going to trade him cards and i was like i'll do that that sounds cool because i was selling some of my collection and they're awesome i love them they like look really nice they look really professional it's totally clear that they're proxies but they also look like the card so it's clear to other people mm-hmm. who are you know used to visually identifying them by the art those are probably my favorite ones, but I do have, there's a place in my heart for the little pen and ink drawings and the, um, and the marker drawings of the Moxon that have like been in a bunch of my second and third decks. Okay. So one more, one more lightning round question. What magic article have you suggested other people to read the most? Huh? Maybe who's the beatdown? All right. All right. Just because it's been around forever. It's classic. That or one of the old, one, one of the old, uh, Jamie Wakefield ones just because I remember reading him and like feeling the, the joy of somebody who is like working really hard to get into the, you know, to win their format and to like play by their own rules. And he was just a good writer. I think that that's something that's pretty compelling to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like um, Jamie Wakefield kind of, well, I mean, for most of my magic career, I would have not felt the need to qualify who Jamie Wakefield was in conversation, but I feel like maybe now you have to, because kind of has yeah he's far enough from it's been a long time ago. But if you ha- if you're not familiar with Jamie Wakefield, you should check him out. It was one of the earliest. I guess he's actually kind of like the proto 
version of what Ben does in a, in a strange way and what I try to do sometimes in the sense that he was, yeah. he was a magic player writing a story about his experience, not someone writing necessarily uh, a strategy article. Strategy, yeah. yeah. And he had his own kind of approach, like school and approach that I think he almost discouraged people from emulating because he thought they were right, but everyone else told him they were wrong. And he's like, fine. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't have to convince you that I'm like doing it right strategically. Mm-hmm. He was on the pro tour for a little while. Yeah. yeah. He, he was famous for playing 62 card, 26 land decks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He, he instilled a lot of verdant force in me. Oh, yeah. The Verdant Forest, man. Secret Forest was... Whew. Yeah, look up... If you have time, you don't know who Jamie Wakefield is, just look up a Secret Forest deck oh. by him from, like, you know, 50, 20 years ago. Man, what a deck. <laughs> yeah, he was a great He was a great writer, and he was more of a, like, talking about his experience. And and he's a person that had a pretty strong connection to the game. His, um, his wife died, and he, like, talked about her a lot in his writing, and um, they actually made a card for his wife. So there was a, I think it was Timbermare in Future Sight oh, yeah, was like yeah, yeah. named that for his wife because she was named, Ma- like he always referred to her as Mare. I think her name was Marion or Mary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. And she, I think she passed away from, I want to say some terminal illness and stuff. This is a long time ago, yeah. but I'm just, I, like he definitely has a strong connection to the game. So yeah, certainly worth looking into if you, if you have it. All right. I feel like that's it. Usually in podcasts, people have the, uh, the guest hype, the, the project they're working on, but that doesn't really seem like it makes sense. I don't know if you want <laughs> yeah. to like check out my terrible vintage decks and no, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I will say if you, if, if I can have the like 30 seconds to give my spiel about a yeah, thing, do I do have a thing. Do it. So here we go. So a lot of the serious guys and I'm trying to get this, and this has gotten a little bit more popular with a different band list other places, but we've started up this other kind of throwback format. We call it middle school. Other people call it, pre-modern or I don't know. There's different names. Basically what it is, is the end of American old school, which is like starting at ice age up through the end of the old border. So torment, no judgment. I don't remember the one that it is that ends the uh, thing right before eighth edition and that set of cards. And we have a ban list for it and stuff that I might send to Andy to put in the show notes or not, depending on what he wants to do. But that format's really fun. We've been playing it a lot. I I'd say it's like, it captures a kind of magic experience that's really to when I was playing, which old school doesn't, even though I think old school is really fun. A lot of people that enjoy that format a lot, their nostalgia hits that time because they played at the very beginning. And I was a little bit later. I was like right around, like I remember Ice Age packs being in the store and I remember when Tempest came out and Mirage came out and stuff. And like that time period is really special to me. So a lot of the decks are reminiscent of those. You can play Current Nightmare Survival. You can play cool bad oath decks because there isn't forbidden orchard it's a fun format so i'll just say yeah if you want to if you're interested in that you want to check that out i i will probably give some sort of link at the very least to just say like here's what the format is but i feel like we need to do we need to get you and steve on and do a full middle school episode sometime oh man uh, i would talk about middle school over the whole meta game <laughs> for sure that'd be fun Okay, that was Jake Hilty, and I am Andy, the Brassman for Vasco, and this has been another thrilling episode of the Manager and Vintage Magic Podcast. 
If you enjoyed the show, head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. If you want more episodes, please consider giving to the Managerain Patreon at patreon.com slash themanadrain. Patreon subscribers also get access to the Managerain Discord channel, so check that out. If you have any questions or feedback about the show, leave them on the Managerain website, or feel free to message me on Twitter at themanadrain or at tmdbrassman. Good game, everybody. Thank you.